Hi, welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. We help elevate the quality of leadership across the world. With me today, I am delighted to have Eric Douglas Keene. He's the founder and president of Keene Advisory Group. So welcome, Eric. Thank you for having me. So today we're going to be talking about diversity, recruiting, and retention. This has become a hot topic, and yet many organizations don't yet understand the nuances of recruiting and how to navigate the complexities of retention and ensuring that candidates and organizations create the best experience and mutual success. So Eric, let's start by tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I am the founder and president of Keen Advisory Group. We are a retained executive search firm known nationally for impactful client-driven solutions to diverse talent acquisition needs. We partner with organizations to recruit general management, board of directors, commercial leadership, and functional executives across the country. I formerly worked with Russell Reynolds, one of the larger global executive Mm -hmm. search Mm firms, where I served as a firm-wide leader on issues of diversity and inclusion. One of the things I appreciate most about you, and so for our listeners who haven't met Eric, he is just a darn good thinker on a range of topics. So I look to you for your expertise. And so I'm delighted to have you join because this is going to be more than a conversation about DE&I or JEDI. It's it's really that you come at this as a business leader sure. who happens to do recruiting rather than a recruiter who happens to be in business. Agreed. Agreed. So let's start with What's changing in the space of diversity recruiting? We did an interview a few years ago, and I am slightly embarrassed by some of the things. I'm learning a lot about diversity. Well, first of all, the fact that you're embarrassed is is a good sign. It means that you're evolving, that you're Mm -hmm. continuing to challenge your own thinking. Mm -hmm. And to play back or think about what we spoke about a few years ago Mm -hmm. would sound very dated now, frankly, in in terms of some of the topics or even Mm -hmm. the language around those topics. Mm -hmm. I I think a lot of what is going on right now involves, you know, understanding and acknowledging of bias. And, And bias isn't inherently bad or inherently wrong, but it is present. And I think the conversation around bias in terms of conscious versus unconscious bias, Mm -hmm. individual versus institutional bias, and you start thinking as a consultant and doing a little two by two, an individual, a a company or organization or a system against, you know, what they know they have biases about versus what they don't know. And you could start mapping and thinking about, you know, how that all comes together. I think that conversation has been brought to the forefront the social justice discussion has elevated in a way that it hasn't been for decades. And the ability to then go out and challenge your assumptions about how you do things and why you do things mm-hmm. is a very important component to your ability to recruit and ultimately retain diverse talent. When queued up in that framework, when thinking about the unconscious and conscious bias operating at an individual or institutional level, It all circles back to the age-old question around the CEO of Wells Fargo made comment about this, about there are just not enough qualified fill-in-the-blank profiles, whether it's African-American, Latino, female. Mm -hmm. That is the the pushback that oftentimes will occur around Mm -hmm. wanting to increase your diversity numbers. There are just not enough qualified people to approach. When I heard that about women, there aren't enough qualified women. We're half the stinking population. Really? <laughs> there aren't enough of us? Well, what happens is this, and it's really, it's it's two-tiered approach, or at least I view it as such. And we'll jump into some of the board work that we're doing and some of the examples that I see. There is a traditional way from my vantage point as a practitioner of executive search. We are, mm-hmm. we are high-end recruiters. Companies hire us to help them find senior executives, board members, so on. Mm-hmm. The traditional approach is very much, these are the things we want, Eric. And oh, by the way, if you can find individuals who are diverse, who match up exactly with what we want, great. And there's some wisdom in that. But there's also some history and some groupthink, specifically around publicly traded boards. What you will often find is that they are over-indexed in trying to find people for their boards who are currently CEOs or currently CFOs or currently general consuls, because they feel like these roles, CFO, CEO, general consul, 
put you in front of the public in a publicly traded company mm -hmm. uh, in a manner that other positions just don't do. Mm -hmm. You understand what's happening. You're in the boardroom. You're dealing with the crisis, with the issues. You're reporting out on a quarterly basis to analysts. You've got that level of interaction. The expansion from the CEO to even the CFO or general counsel was a big step for many boards. But what has happened is that they've drawn a circle around those three roles saying these are the only ones that we are really going to consider at the end of the day for board opportunities. And if you can't find diverse candidates who match up against those three uh, arenas, then they default back to what is kind of the cronyism of call up Jim. We're at the country club together. Our kids went to school with each other and, and he checks these boxes. So bring him on board and, and then they end up with another white male. Right. That does happen. And someone who thinks like them. Sure. I just went through ESG board certification. Sure. And it was interesting that they're making the distinction that folks who have gotten us here are not the ones who will get us to the next level because it requires different thinking. So bringing in your friend who ran X company may in fact be counterproductive. Who indexes 99% with what you already think and mm -hmm. already do. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And in other arenas, it's commonly accepted that you think about the development of companies from venture to you know startup to various rounds of capital, and the leadership or the ownership or the controlling interests are the first to tell you that the people who got us there from A to B are not necessarily mm -hmm. the folks to get you from B to C, but there's still a reluctance around those, those arenas. On the other end, I'm showing some of my biases here. I came out of a McKinsey. I came out of a Russell Reynolds. I tend to be a top-down structured thinker in, in that regard. You, you build searches in different ways. It's called search strategies at okay. the end of the day. So we talked about a search strategy earlier. Gee, we want a general counsel or a CFO or a CEO. And then let's find some diverse candidates that might match up against that. And if we can't find the diverse candidates, we'll go with Jim from the country club. Another build, another search strategy might be we are committed to finding diverse candidates, period. Now let's find diverse candidates, first and foremost, who we think match up well against the things that we're looking for. And it's a slightly different structure. There's nuance there. You're committed to finding diverse candidates, first and foremost, and, and then trying to align those candidates with what the company might be looking for. Now this has pitfalls as well. The pitfalls in this scenario is that you may very well end up bringing on a diverse candidate for a board who ends up being more of a token, as in this is an individual who isn't really contributing to the betterment of this board or this institution, but perhaps there are some outside forces at work that really reward you for putting you know, a woman or a person of color on the board and moving on. And neither one of these extremes is right. We don't mm. want the cronyism of finding gin from the country club, but we also don't want token individuals who are one and done, never to be uh, recommended again or, or brought on a board again because they were misplaced or uh, uh, misaligned with the company mm. that they joined. Mm. The work gets done in the middle. I get to be privy to and a part of these conversations. There needs to be advocacy on both fronts. And we'll start with the latter. The latter is expanding the definition of what it means to be a qualified board member. So you mentioned uh, in one of our conversations that I thought was really helpful, most qualified candidate or qualified candidate, and then considering diversity as one of the qualifications. So if I've got three candidates and they all meet the requirements, I may prioritize diversity over something else. I'm not going to bring in a token just because they fit a biological difference. Right, right. Well, again, my fallback is always around, and my company operates under a both-and premise. So we're going to find you quality people, and we believe that there are qualified quality people who happen to be women or people of color. That earlier point that, that you brought up from earlier discussions is, is an important one. Think about medical exams, the boards. They might note you on your diploma for high distinction for how much you passed your exam by. But at the end of the day, everyone who passed is called a doctor. Or a lawyer. <laughs> or a lawyer. Or, a or an accountant. <laughs> exactly. So let's get out of the whole must be a Baker scholar from Harvard mindset 
and say, these folks meet the qualifications for what we are looking for. And given that they do, there are far broader range of experiences, skill sets, perspectives that may be of value to, you know, what is going on with this organization. One of the things I remember at Accenture in our recruiting process, because as most of our managers do, I did recruiting, and they said, we don't want the four O's. We don't want the kids who were brilliant but never had a job. We want people who've worked hard, had to earn where they are. So to your point, the most brilliant scholar may in fact not be the best person at delivery, depending on the organization. Absolutely. The the, the skill set, what you have to overcome will often define who you are and can be representative of what you will be like in an actual client situation and not an academic situation. Mm-hmm. You need someone who has a 4.0 from their studies. That's fine. But is, is that what you're asking them to do? Are you asking them to conduct and take more classes when they work for Accenture? Or are you asking them to interact in a meaningful way with clients, clients mm-hmm. who have different agendas, different perspectives of the world, different mm-hmm. education? And can you be effective in, in those types of environments? Thinking back to the, to the board discussion, I have a client who very much thought to expand the horizon of who they might bring onto the board. And it was commendable about how they created this situation, had recently gone through a merger, had acquired additional assets, assets that had some human capital related issues. Internally, they had a longstanding CHRO who was set to retire. They were elevating a a second-in-command to become CHRO, but this individual had never been CHRO, and they knew they were facing some labor strife. They went out and proactively brought a board member in that brought senior-level human resources experience to the board because it was the strategic right fit for what they were going to do and what the challenges they would have over the next four to seven years. And I think a lot of companies don't, don't think that way. They are oftentimes looking for prestige candidates and not always thinking about the functional excellence or insight that an individual could bring. There is a sweetheart relationship with C-level executives in general. If you're a $5 billion company and you can get an individual from a $50 billion company who may not be a direct report to the CEO, but has experienced every possible permutation of what you're going through, you should feel empowered to go after those individuals and not turn your nose at them simply because, oh, they don't report to the CEO and therefore they're not senior enough. The scale alone will allow them to have tremendous impact on your company and what it's doing. So we've talked about diversity. How do you build the pipeline of candidates so that you're not dipping into the same pool that every other recruiter is dipping into? Well, you can't be afraid of dipping into the same pool. You know, it is competitive by definition. You know, the war for talent is real at the end of the day. The pipeline issues really have to do with advocacy and access many times. So, Eric, there are a range of diversity recruiters. How do you go about finding the right candidates and building a pipeline of diverse candidates, because back to the point you made earlier, there aren't enough fill-in-the-blank women, people of color, and yet you and I both believe there are many more than are brought to the fore because we keep seeing the same five people. (laughs) The usual suspects. and, And now in the ESG stuff, they're saying you don't get credit for having that Jim from the country club because he's now on 12 boards. Right. So there are more candidates. How do you differentiate and identify those gems that aren't showing up in every search? Sure. Well, I'll elevate back to an earlier discussion that we, uh, that we had around the bias, conscious and unconscious. And I am no exception. I bring perspective and bias to the table and certain clients that that will resonate better with than others. I had mentioned I've worked for McKinsey. I've worked for Russell Reynolds. These are large global firms. They have a way of doing things. I was trained, classically trained, some would say, you know, in, in those types of activities. So our first premise is that we find qualified candidates, period, full stop. Our additional or addendum hypothesis is that we believe the solution set of qualified candidates has women and people of color in it in a way that you typically don't see when other firms are doing the same work. 
And that might be some limitations on their part or your internal sourcing capabilities. But let me highlight some of the things that we bring to bear in these scenarios. First of all, because we're a boutique, it's not a stretch to understand that the leadership sets the direction and the tone. This is important to me. Therefore, everyone who works with me gets that this is important to them. Or you don't hire them. Or we don't hire them or we don't work with them. We have an extended network of, of consultants that will work with us. And everyone gets it when you're working with me that this is serious. This, this is something that is seminal to who we are. As a boutique, I am not reporting into another office asking permission to do things. So I'm someone who participates in these diversity conferences. And there are a lot of them. You can't go to all of them. But, but I make a point of getting to enough of them in any given year to stay current. The LGBTQ plus alone conversation if you're not using the right letters, if you don't have the right empathy when talking about these issues can make you sound old and dated and out of touch very, very quickly. So we invest in trying to stay current on these issues in a meaningful way. And we believe that when we engage with both clients and the candidates that we're pursuing on behalf of those clients, it's authentic. The second piece would be because we're a boutique, I still get involved in doing work. I don't just sell donuts, Maureen. I make donuts. So what does that mean? It means in the morning, I oftentimes am on the phone, email, social media, texting with candidates, not clients. I've got a great team around me. And even though I'm the primary principal generating business, I still like to do work. And my clients often hire us because they expect me to be involved with the doing of the work, not just the selling of the work. And when there is a senior level, principal level, ownership level participant in the doing of the work, we think we get a better product. We get a more diverse slate of candidates at the end of the day. So that would be a second reason. The third reason is, is around some structural or some infrastructure issues germane to executive search. We simply don't have the off limits, the restrictions that some of our bigger competitors have. And it becomes painfully obvious when you start talking around issues of diversity and inclusion and how these restrictions play out. The first one, and you might think of a law firm more classically in terms of off limits. One law firm's not going to represent a client and then a competitive client, you know, in the same type of case or in the same situation. That's bad business. Executive search operates in the same way. So what does that mean? It means that in a certain industry, a larger search firm may already have three to five, four to seven clients in that industry. So you, new client, need to be briefed as to the fact that we're not going to go into these companies on your behalf. Hmm. Now they will challenge and say, well, it's okay. We're a global firm. We have global access. And therefore, the fact that we can't go into these four to seven companies on your behalf is not going to restrict the talent pool. Savvier clients are learning. In North America, 90%, 95% of C-level executive searches are filled with North Americans. You're not typically finding someone from Portugal or South Africa or Japan to fill the CEO or any of the C-suite spots in Fortune 1000 companies. It's just not true. So what does that mean? It means that not being able to go into these four to seven companies actually is an impediment to your ability to find the best talent out there. And that in and of itself is an issue. Imagine now if you put a lens of diversity against that very same issue, and you could see how the pool of qualified candidates can now shrink to a minuscule number simply because of the companies that you can't go into. The secondary issue would be on a more personal level. At the big firms, you don't dip into existing candidates or existing clients and then you don't steal candidates from your colleagues. So we're based in Chicago. If I was at a big firm, I've got colleagues in New York, Atlanta, and LA who might be doing a similar search. And guess what? If they're already talking to a candidate, I can't talk to them. Hmm. Again, challenging in general, but even more painful to the process if these are diverse candidates and I can't talk to them. So when you combine all the factors around being able to engage meaningfully, who's doing the work at the end of the day, and who you can talk to, ultimately, the answers become very much usual suspect and not the, the true audience or the true marketplace that is available.
So you're making the argument that, in fact, working with the biggest global firms is not as beneficial as working with a boutique where you have access to a broader range of clients because your off limits are fewer. Agreed. Okay. Yes. And you're also going after and cultivating candidates who aren't the usual suspects, right? Sure. Well, part of attending these conferences and thinking about this more holistically is is challenging clients. And, and I'm in a unique position to do that, to look at a position specification and and have some meaningful back and forth with the client about, you know, now, now why does this individual need to be an MBA from Harvard? Mm-hmm. Typically, there are reasons. And they'll tell you the reasons and they'll list the three to five things that they want. And then flipping that on its head and saying, if we can bring individuals who can do these three to five things, can we put the Harvard MBA to the side and focus on what their actual capabilities are? Oh, sure. Yeah, I guess so. It's a heuristic and you can't blame them for a heuristic. It's a shortcut. Mm-hmm. But the shortcut can often lead to the same type of profiles that you've seen time mm-hmm. and time again. If you don't change, you know, the input, you're not going to change the output. Yeah. In fact, I helped recruit someone for a board. They were looking for a woman, but very much we want the right person. It would be nice if it also happened to be female. Right. She happened to be a CIO from an incredibly large organization, and she has been brilliant in the role. Sure. And they were very concerned initially about how she would fit and how she would do say not she wasn't Jim from the country club right <laughs> but she's been amazing in her contribution and she will take them forward in a way that Jim hasn't absolutely and and you know we've talked about this in, in a broader scope but at the end of the day the questions and observations and conversations around diversity are often representative of broader cultural issues within company mm-hmm. and that starts at the board the tone they set the tone Well, and we as leaders, as consultants, but also as board members need to be thinking about what are we prioritizing? And we've all read the studies about the impact of diversity on performance. And this gets to bias and we all have it. Mm -hmm. We are more comfortable with people who have had experiences similar to ours because they're easier to work with. Right. They're not going to argue. They're not going to disagree about things we didn't even think about. not more effective, just easier. Easier, yes. In in almost every other facet, you, you're called out for taking the easy path. Mm-hmm. Right, was that the best path? Was it the most productive path? No, it was the easiest path. Well, why did we do that then? And and yet, in these scenarios, when it comes to bringing on diverse talent or, or the lack thereof, defaulting to the easiest path is oftentimes accepted and not challenged in the same way that other business decisions mm-hmm. are. Yeah, and part of it's we're human. But that doesn't make us smarter. Right. Maureen and Eric talking about diversity, recruiting the benefit of diverse candidates and retention. Now we're going to shift gears to you got the right person, we hope, for your organization. How do we make sure that they are a good fit? They feel appreciated and engaged and both they feel like they're going to thrive because they will and you are positioning to get the best benefit from someone who may look and think and behave differently. You hired them for those reasons. And yet I can say I joined Accenture as an experienced hire. That's what they were looking for. And almost all of the people they paid more money for as experienced hires were gone within two years. So this was 20 years ago. So no assault on Accenture. The point is organizations often look for people who are different than the existing team and getting the benefit from people who are different is tough and keeping them and bringing everyone together as a cohesive organization is tough. And Eric, again, this is a sweet spot that you have learned to navigate to help hire and build the culture where people thrive. Sure. And and what you've highlighted, and let's have some back and forth on this, there's really a continuum. And as a practitioner of executive search, you also have to be realistic about where you can have impact in an organization. So at the front end, the recruiting side, obviously, where we spend our time, most of our time, are you seeing diverse candidates as part of your slates mm-hmm. being introduced for a given role? And if you're not, then that is a lever that we can help pull and help address and say, well, you're not seeing a diverse slate working with Keen Advisory Group. 
you most likely will. And you'll see, again, my earlier hypothesis around we find qualified people and we believe that solution set includes women and people of color in far more scenarios than perhaps are actually being presented. So are you seeing diverse candidates? Step one. Step two, once you've seen what everyone agrees to be qualified, diverse candidates, can you actually hire them? And if not, now the talent acquisition team, the HR team is now empowered. So we've agreed that these are qualified candidates by the hiring manager in general, the recruiting firm, the talent acquisition leadership, and yet we're not able to bring them on board. Is there something inherent in our process? Is there some bias that we're bringing to the table that we don't even understand institutionally or perhaps at the individual level that is taking people out of consideration either We opt out on individuals who are, in fact, potentially great hires or potentially great hires are opting out on us because of what they're hearing and they're seeing. Mm -hmm. So that's the second phase or second step. The third piece is you've hired diverse candidates, but they're not staying. And they're not staying perhaps for some of the reasons highlighted in that second stage, which is perhaps once they're there, they're receiving formal or informal feedback around who they are and how they're appreciated or underappreciated in that organization. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they are either put on a plan because of lack of performance, or they simply hit the exit button and decide to go on their own after you know a premature set of time because they don't see the fit. And it wasn't in line with what perhaps the recruiter or the talent acquisition specialist or lead within the company put forth. So you've talked about then the range of places people hit pitfalls. How do you personally or your organization and how should listeners, because these these are the likely scenarios they're going to fall through. There are a variety of scenarios. And again, as I highlighted, I have a bias. I have an appreciation for where we sit on that chain as an executive search firm on primarily the front end. But you try to articulate the right message and spend the time at the front of the discussion to understand the culture so that you're representing that accurately to a candidate pool. I err on the side of being tough up front and rather than have a parade of candidates who might be interested, who all look wonderful on paper, I'd rather show you a shorter list of people who've heard your challenges, seen some of your warts, Mm -hmm. and still demonstrated interest in your opportunity. And those folks are far more likely to navigate the process, they accept and they stay at the end of the day. You highlighted earlier the correlation, it would appear correlation around companies that are demonstrably more diverse at their senior levels and their performance. And there's an increasing knowledge of of work that's going into that and understanding that better. Candidly, it's still unclear about the causality of that as compared to the correlation. So correlation, yes. Top performing companies tend to index high on their diversity issues. What really might be at work, and we've alluded to this a little bit already, is diversity or indexing well on diversity really representative of a better corporate culture at the end of the day? And is it that corporate culture that is inclusive of diversity issues that really speaks to why these companies are high performers versus their peers? Oftentimes, especially because of the environment in which we're in, there's a lot of noise around the diversity issue and companies are trying to fix their culture through a diversity-only lens, which is backwards. When you really Mm -hmm. think about it, it's backwards. Mm -hmm. Companies need to be brave enough to acknowledge and challenge some of their corporate cultural issues. And when you fix those issues, it then migrates through the system to where the issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion become far more clear in the eyes of the layperson, in the eyes of the of the everyday worker. We've got it right here, and therefore it's easy for me to act in a way, to perform in a way, to uh, advocate in a way that is consistent with these values that, that, that represent our culture. But if this is broken. misaligned or broken or toxic, there's no amount of diversity training or even diversity hiring that's going to fix a broken culture. You know, as you think about this, it raises in my mind, one of the questions I've grappled with is, as we talk about what are the characteristics of effective leadership? And I've gone back and forth with researchers and 
women who are strong advocates for women's leadership, not as much in the diversity space yet. There are a set of qualities that are represent effective leadership, irrespective of the body I grew up in or the experiences I had. So humility, robust thinking, ability to collaborate without bringing my own emotional baggage into stuff, intellectually curious, growth mindset, the things we hear in the tweets, but they're much bigger than a tweet. Diverse candidates bring in different thinking, but good thinking. They have an ability to be humble. And that means putting my ego aside and looking at what's best for the organization. When you start thinking about diverse candidates more broadly, uh, all the tenants that you highlighted coming out of your innovation leadership mm -hmm. uh, organization, you know that, that holds true. Those are universal. The question tends to be around how do you get there? And are there experiences that will get people there that perhaps are not as easily recognizable by individuals who don't share their background? So my ability to, to have empathy or demonstrate grace under pressure may have manifested in a way that is different than what you may have grown up around. And therefore, you're blind to seeing that. You don't, you don't know that about me because you wouldn't see it in the same way that I experienced it at the end of the day. I was thinking about, you know, these attributes that you're, you're, you're talking about and thinking about from a development standpoint, mm -hmm. and, and I'll, I'll hearken back to my, my early days as a management consultant. And I, I was told very clearly, you know, to be successful around here, you need to have three things going for you. You need to have a, a partner caliber individual who is an advocate, not a mentor, an advocate. And the example was he or she will, will, will bang the table on your behalf when you're not in the room. You've got to have that in place. You've got to have someone who is probably more of a mentor or your engagement manager, if you're an associate or analyst, someone who is going to stretch you beyond what you think you're capable of doing. The amount of stretch is always open to debate, especially with management consultants and investment bankers <laughs> and the hours that they work, right? Yeah, yeah. But someone who's not going to accept the status quo from you can see the potential and give you stretch assignments to push you out of your comfort zone mm -hmm. to demonstrate that you do have the capabilities to the next level. Someone's got to actively, proactively be doing that for you. The people who succeed at the McKinsey's, at the Accenture's, at the Goldman's, typically have someone who is doing that for them. Pushing them pushing, hard. Yeah. Whether they're they, already pushing themselves Right. Hard. They're already, by definition, you, you've you already selected yourself into a, a fairly... Uh, meat grinder. A meat grinder <laughs> or elite group, depending yeah, on how you look at it. Both. Yeah, uh, an elite meat grinder. <laughs> there you go. But having someone, again, some in some cultures, it's informal and just assumed. In other mm -hmm. cultures, it's it's rigid, but it's there. But someone pushing you. So you have to have that second piece in place. That third piece is more of the peer-to-peer -peer camaraderie. Are you working with a cohort of people that you trust? Can you go out on Friday after a crappy week, yelled at by your client, yelled at by the partner, have a few beers, vent in a constructive manner, and it stays in the room? You've got to have those types of, of experiences and relationships as well. And candidly, if, if you're somewhere for two or three years and you can't check all of those boxes, it's going to be really challenging for you to be a success, to be successful mm -hmm. in that environment. And I, that applies to broader corporate America, but it's particularly poignant in professional services, you know, where we grew up. Well, the thing that, that I've gone back and forth on is, is there leadership and then diversity leadership, leadership and women's leadership. And my assertion is good leadership, irrespective of what our physiology looks like, can be reflected in similar mindsets and behaviors. I'm going to bring different perspectives than you do because we grew up in different towns, different families, different bodies, and different cohorts. And yet why you are good, at least why I respect you, is you're a brilliant thinker that you grew up in different environments than I do means you have, you bring that perspective, but you're able to be open-minded and thoughtful. 
And hopefully I am a good thinker and open-minded and thoughtful. And we come into a conversation. The value that diversity brings is we're not all Jim from the same country club who had the same experiences and those diverse experiences, but also the common set of criteria for good leadership brings us together as people who, as peers, can go have a glass of wine or bottles of wine at the bar tonight. And we will learn from one another and deeply value that camaraderie. A few thoughts. Good pupil versus good student. Good pupil learns solely because there is a good teacher. Good student Mm -hmm. learns independent of whether the teacher is particularly strong or not. If we translate that to the various tenets of leadership, and there are some leaders who are fine when everything is fine. What's more interesting is, are they a good leader when things aren't fine? And those are the ones post-COVID, during COVID. (laughs) Exactly. We saw the difference. They were stress tests in many ways that were completely unexpected to, to most of corporate America. And emerging from COVID, we'll see how that translates on a going forward basis. And so here's my hypothesis. Being a diverse person, a person of color, you had to deal with things that some of your colleagues did not. Given my background, I had to deal with some things people did not. That forced us to build in capacities that are, in some cases, other folks didn't have to build. So we have been tested already and built in additional capabilities. And I'll say just we as diverse candidates, not me or you or, or Bill or Fred. But often our diverse candidates have had to build additional capabilities to get through the gates that others did not have to. And they bring that to the organization. That's causal, not correlation. Sure, sure. In hearing your description, I immediately thought of resilience Mm -hmm. and adaptability, Mm -hmm. both of which in traditional everything is going right scenarios are not particularly tested. It's when things go wrong, how resilient, how gritty are you? Do you keep on getting up after being knocked down time and time again? You don't know that if you've never been knocked down. Adaptability. When things are straightforward and the sun is shining, it's wonderful. Mm -hmm. If it's cloudy days for six months in a row, how are you managing that? And that actually leads to a a broader discussion. I I was thinking about the tenets of leadership and the communications around leadership. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of discussion around code switching. Code switching, which is basically adapting or adopting different ways of speak to accommodate the audience in which you're interacting mm, with. Mm-hmm. In a more classic sense, you sound white when you speak. Or my LGBTQ community that where I do advocacy work. Right. I sound friendly or not friendly in that space. Exactly. And so there, there are philosophical questions around that. Should you have to versus... You know, the reality of... But uh, you have to. Right, exactly. So that that's where I land. But a lot of the advocacy right now mm-hmm. is pushing on anything from how you speak to your attire, to the school you went to. I mean, these are mm-hmm. all issues of, do you have to go to the right school? Do you have to speak in a proper way? Do you have to dress in a certain way to be successful at the task at hand? And I suspect that there is a wide range of answers on that. But it's, it's good to be challenging those types of preconceived notions around, you know, what does success look like? When you were speaking, I was thinking of CEO of GM, Mary Barra, Mm -hmm. and they had a a dress code issue a few years ago. And, And she succinctly cut right to the point and said, here's our dress code. Dress appropriately, period. A 15 to 20 page manual on how to dress for certain situations got perfectly encapsulated in dress appropriately. Unfortunately, we at times having run teams of people appropriately from whose view the stretch pants and 25 (laughs) earrings when working for a public accounting firm in my view was not appropriate in the client's view was not appropriate. We have to help people understand what that means. Agreed. Two things. First of all, the world is changing. Mm -hmm. We are on one side of these discussions now versus, versus before. So the world is changing one, but two, appropriateness 
is still appropriate, you have to give people the chance to adapt and come in line. And oftentimes a complaint from women and people of color is that they don't get the second chance. So it's a one strike rule. You mess up once, you're done. You're, you're, you're forever tainted in the eyes of the partners or the hiring mm -hmm. managers. You know, they don't get it, right? So uh, part of this discussion is around, we want the same number of strikes as our white male counterparts are given in a similar scenario. And I'll say as a woman, we have different choices. Yes. My white male counterparts pretty much wear khakis and blue shirts. When I saw a young woman on my team who wore thigh high stockings and I could see the upper thigh, not helpful. But the dudes in the room didn't have those wardrobe choices. True. So they weren't making the same mistakes. And this shouldn't be a conversation. This should be be nice. As the manager of the poor woman who looks in the mirror and doesn't see her parts exposed, somebody should say, when you're sitting in front of a group, I should never know what color your underwear is. Agreed. Period. Agreed. And are we allowed to iterate? So, God, can, you, so. can you have that conversation and they get it enough to, to come in line? None gonna... of us has not had a day we wish we could get a mulligan for. Yeah. Mulligan's a great term. In corporate America, you know, how many mulligans you are given is equally important as your capabilities and skill set to your success. There are people who inherently, some would say because of bias historically, the white male counterparts, mm -hmm. but people who walk in with connections of any sort to a company or their parents worked for the company, you know, all have these mulligans kind of yeah. baked into their equation yeah. that, you know, someone who doesn't come from that background mm -hmm. just doesn't bring to the table. Yeah. And that's just, that's just such an important part of being willing and able to make a mistake mm -hmm. and have the room to recover and give them the chance to do so. So I want to give an example. We worked in the same thing, accounting firm. We had a young man whose family, and you talk about legacy, didn't speak English well, economically disadvantaged, mm -hmm. specifically. His grammar was poor. He occasionally just did things that were natural in his family, but not in our environment. Had he not gotten the mulligans, he would have been gone. In this case, I worked for someone who was brilliant at spotting talent, and he got the opportunity to get the mentoring he needed to speak well and to learn what was appropriate in that setting because that setting was so far outside of his norm he had no idea what appropriate meant mm -hmm. and for our listeners i hope we give that level of grace whether it's the dude who grew up in a trailer park in this case or any range of diverse candidates right in some cases, it's not diverse candidates. It's the, the white dude who grew up in a trailer park. Sure. It's care for our people. Care for our people. And again, the, the, the whole mindset around development and perhaps even meritocracy. Meritocracy mm -hmm. is something that is, is often mis, misquoted, misplaced. Companies over-index on saying how much of a meritocracy they are. When if you start peeling back the numbers, you can see that that's simply not the case. I call it snapshot meritocracy. It's used when it's convenient, typically on an exclusionary level, and then overlooked when, you know, when other things are, are going well or, or in line with what your expectations are at the end of the day. You know, we talked about, you know, the pipelining efforts earlier and, and some of the cultural inferences related to that. The development of pipelines by definition, in my opinion, is very, very much tied to the ability to take risks and occasionally fail. And, and again, back to those, mm -hmm. do you get mulligans? Do you get mm -hmm. multiple strikes? Back to the board example, we should always be advocating for a broader range of candidates, other functional executives. But let's not forget that in order to be a CEO, a CFO, a general consul, there's typically some risk that goes into your career that stretches you, as we alluded mm -hmm. to before, yeah. And gives you the opportunity. And the mentorship and the guidance. Nobody does this alone. No one does it alone. And you've got to have room to take chances, to take risks, to fail, and to know that you'll still have a job, even though it didn't work out the way that you necessarily planned at the end of the day. So let me ask a question that is politically tough, but I'm in rooms now where people are saying... I didn't get the job because only 
diverse candidates or we're favoring diverse candidates or any of the backlash sure. for DEI and causal or correlation we believe i think the research says diversity helps but if i'm the person who didn't get the job because somebody else was picked i'm going to be angry yes. how do we navigate the balance of repairing decades of exclusion mm -hmm. and trying to correct means that the correction process can also cause anger and resentment. Absolutely. And that, that is a fair response in many scenarios. Some of this is going to get played out in the courts and has been and, and will be. But back to some of our earlier conversations around high honors versus passing and what is required for this role. So we look at a pool of candidates and everyone here has passed the bar. And now that they've passed the bar, they're all qualified. So once you're qualified, now there is a range of attributes that you're looking to address for your company's need in this specific situation, not simply around who got a higher score at the end of the day. That is a meaningful way to kind of address those issues mm -hmm. of, you were, you were part of a pool of qualified candidates. Once everyone's been established as qualified by traditional criteria, experience, worked this many years at this type of company, doing this types of things, everyone's got that. Now there's a secondary group of criteria that companies are looking for to address specific needs or holes or opportunities for their companies. And sometimes you get those opportunities or roles and sometimes you don't. I think it's such an important issue and so divisive right now. Mm -hmm. Organizations appropriately set, I think appropriately say, we have been out of balance for a long time and we need to return to balance. And that means over hiring, over hiring, quote, to come back into what we think is an appropriate mix of our executives reflecting the population. So what does overhiring mean? I'll give an example of an organization locally who said we're going to hire 75% of our candidates who are diverse. Sure. Where traditionally they've not paid much attention. And so folks trying to fill roles are saying we, we can't hit the targets. Right. Speaking from people I know who are incredibly socially conscious. And this was what troubled me. Hearing people who are not the dinosaurs, but the socially conscious people who are saying, I want to meet these criteria, but I now can't hire for empty positions because of the 75% diverse target versus something. Every company has to, to establish their own set of rules. Language is important. Simply categorizing it as overhiring has already set an expectation that perhaps something is wrong about what we're doing as compared to we have simply created different priorities. The simple word overhiring immediately brings forth ideas of some kind of impropriety going on. And, and we, to remember that is important. You know, how that is addressed, again, that plays out at a company by company basis. And companies have to acknowledge, you know, what pain they might go through in not filling a role or waiting six months to fill the role with the newly defined criteria that they're looking for. There's no universal answer. At the end of the day, uh, they, they will become more comfortable with it. And we also have to acknowledge that there are situations where you won't hit your numbers. There's a lot of value in transparency, however. And this seems important to me because it's a conversation that is relevant in trying to correct decades of imbalance and how do we do it in a way that is ethical and caring. And constructive. And constructive. Right. There is an inequality, equality, uh, equity, justice continuum that's you know well documented in any number of do in any number of, of articles and, and and writings that you know articulates that that continuum as part of that it's tough work it's not easy if it was easy we would have figured it out decades ago my observation has been alluding back to the transparency comment being clear and transparent about what you're doing and how you're doing is a large part of the battle because what is that doing it's shifting the equation from we're just trying to address the diversity issue to a culture that is willing to try, to stretch, to occasionally fail, 
to learn from those failings and to get better. But if you're operating a culture that I don't want to hear bad news because we're managing so tight to it on a quarter to quarter basis, any bad news given our environment is going to reflect poorly in our stock price. So companies that are stuck in that mindset oftentimes will embark down a path of addressing diversity issues, go at it for a quarter or two, not see the results, and then they want to bury it as though it never happened. Because if we talk about it and we don't hit the number, that's worse than never talking about it at all. And I would disagree. The talking about it, the being transparent, the acknowledging that you're on a journey, that you're not perfect is part of developing the culture that you want that will ultimately succeed. And thank you for engaging in this part of the conversation. For our listeners, this was not part of the script. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the things I love is we're in a time where we are grappling with issues. And I really encourage listeners to create a forum where we grapple with difficult issues. To Eric's point, there is no simple solution. There may not even be a hard solution right now. We're creating the path forward. We call the show co-creating our future because we're creating something that doesn't exist. It is difficult on all sides. There is no politically correct, easy, appropriate answer. We're all struggling to create an environment that works for a broad range of stakeholders, which means people are going to get pissed off. Yeah. I think back on days where civil discourse was civil. (laughs) (laughs) And discourse. (laughs) And those environments are are underappreciated. And perhaps I'm showing my age and opinions about social media, Mm -hmm. but the ability to convene and talk about issues in a way where you're actually listening and not simply waiting to speak on your Mm -hmm. own. And you can agree to disagree with people who have different political views, but you leave better educated or at least more appreciative of where they're coming from. Those types of efforts in conjunction to what is formally happening within corporate America, I think are the path to uh, advancement on these issues. So for our listeners, I hope you are hearing things that stretch your mind and stretch your perspective. You may not agree with Eric or I, (laughs) And that's good. That's okay. We thank you for your attention, for your inquiry, hopefully for your taking these thoughts and mulling them over in your own heads and taking more enlightened action than you did yesterday. And at least for me, I learn every time I have a conversation with Eric and I get hopefully more effective. Once again, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And where would people reach you if they are interested in learning more about your work? Online, www.keenadvisorygroup.com. All one word. K-E-E-N-E. Yes. Advisory group. And you're on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is probably the most straightforward way, LinkedIn and and our website. And it's Eric Douglas Keen. The LinkedIn name is Eric Douglas Keen. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you again for joining us for your thoughtful attention. Please like us, share us all the standard stuff on whichever your preferred outlet is. And we trust that you will join us again. Most importantly, you as good leaders make a difference in the world. We appreciate the work you're doing and growing and making our world better.